All right. Well, I have with me today Yasmin Nair, who is a writer, activist, and academic, um, co-founding member of the Against Equality Literature and Arts Collective. I'm really glad to have you on today, Yasmin. It's such a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Devin. So today we're going to talk about um, a little bit of contemporary queer identity politics and where that intersects with the military, police institutions, institutions of violence in the U.S., and just have a kind of larger conversation of rethinking inclusion. And Yasmin, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. If there's anything I missed, aside from writer, activist, academic, all that stuff, anything else you would like to say, um, kind of introduction? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm, I am also the uh, co-founder of Against Equality, the Radical Editorial Collective, and also a member of Gender Just, a radical queer collective here in Chicago. I'm, yes, I'm a writer <laughs> and an activist, <laughs> mostly I'm a writer and um, I'm working on a book project titled uh, Strange Love, The Invention of Social Justice. So this mm. conversation is something I'm really looking forward to. I guess we can just dive right in. You recently published an article with Current Affairs. Uh, I think it was back in March yes. that was co-written with Eli Massey. And the title of it was Inclusion in the Atrocious. The whole thing was sort of a critique of this very mainstream and liberal narrative, which is pushing for quote unquote diversity and inclusion inside of the military or other kind of institutions of, of violence, in my opinion. But can you kind of give a brief overview of that article and what you were trying to, to say with that? Sure. We wrote it at the height of the calls for trans inclusion, which are still continuing. And we wanted to present essentially what is a sort of a left queer radical perspective about the idea of inclusion. As you know, um, radical left queers who have been in existence for many, many centuries, mm -hmm, but have just mm -hmm. been marginalized and made invisible, have always had a critique of imperialism and war. That's always been intrinsic to a, le a left queer agenda. And what we, but, but in recent years, in recent decades, as you know, the call for inclusion in what we consider rather harmful institutions like marriage and the, and the military have been on the rise. And we wanted to think about trans inclusion, especially at a time when trans politics and uh, issues concerning, for instance, trans violence, right, are really coming mm -hmm. to the fore in the public eye. And yet what we found was that people were also demanding more trans inclusion or not questioning what that meant, what that might mean in the context of sending trans and queer people into war. So we wanted to complicate that conversation. We wanted to present a facet of the politics of trans inclusion that actually has not been uh, present even in uber left discourse. You know, if you look at democracy mm -hmm. now, for instance, uh, that on that channel you will find, on that show you will find very little critique of the idea of trans inclusion. And what we find surprising is that even the left, for instance, remains quiet when people talk about trans inclusion in terms of patriotism, in terms of advancing an American war agenda. And nobody's talking about the fact that basically the argument is that trans people should be able to enter the military, not only for purposes of inclusion, but because, for instance, they get things like healthcare. And our mm. point is simply, it's a little ironic to ask trans people to essentially agree to be blown up to bits in exchange for healthcare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what we really wanted to do in essence was to complicate this idea of inclusion, especially in terms of LGBTQ people. I think that complication is really dire and important right now. Um, you mentioned a long history of the left and especially kind of queer and queer radicals on the left having this anti-war and anti-imperialist stance. And I think that what we've seen is over the past maybe decade or two, a sort of coattailing or, or silencing of that anti-imperialist politic. Um, and it's, it's through the narrative of inclusion and diversity, right? So one example that is really often used when talking about this is the Israeli military is yeah. known, the IDF is known for being very, very queer and trans friendly. Um, when at the same exact time, it's actually a very oppressive society for queer and trans people, both inside of Israel, but as well as the occupied Palestine. Um, so do you think that that narrative of, or that comparison holds up to the US military, wherein not only are they offering themselves to go be blown up to pieces, but they're also 
having to pledge allegiance to go blow someone else up um, and, you know, enact, I guess, settler colonial violence for their own kind of queer autonomy. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's an excellent example because, and an excellent parallel, because the ideology in many ways of both uh, military uh, entities is a lot, is, is so alike in terms <laughs> of world domination, in terms of really reaching out to specifically target the most marginalized communities to hold mm -hmm. dominion over territory. And it is, I think, what is fascinating about both entities is that the narrative of inclusion serves to, in effect, soften and also obscure and take attention away from what you called the dianus, right? The sheer dianus of that agenda. Um, so yes, in, in terms of IDF, it is about, well, you know, there, first of all, why are queer people being recruited? In what ways does that advance an imperialist agenda? But also mm -hmm. who gets killed in the process? Uh, and the same is certainly true, you know, against equality, he said this all throughout, which is that the US military uh, targets marginalized populations and uses us as canon, you know, as fodder, basically. So mm -hmm. that, I think that's a really good parallel. And I think that's going to be true for a number of uh, military entities, you know, as neoliberalism spreads, haltingly even, but as it spreads and as the militaristic wing, as it were, the military wing of neoliberalism becomes more apparent, more apparent than it already is. I think we're going to see more and more about this rhetoric of inclusion on, mm -hmm. in, I think, across several continents. You know, it's not just going to be uh, the U.S. military or the Israeli military. I think this is going to be something that's going to be a pattern. One of the things that is so interesting in your critique is not that it's just sort of a critique of what some some would name, I guess, as kind of contemporary identity politics or really identity reductionism, um, but it's it's really a critique of the entire narrative of inclusion and diversity and what that can be used for. As a student of Black studies, what that reminds me of is the multicultural movement back in like the late 80s, early 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Where there was this push to no longer have a separate study for Black studies and, and Latino studies or gender and women's studies, et cetera. It was just put it all under the banner of multiculturalism and diversity. In effect, what that did was just flattened studies and, and struggles that didn't need to be flattened and conglomerated together at all. And it pushed this sort of quote unquote post-racial narrative. Do you see a same kind of tra trajectory happening with the future of identity being used to, to promote an imperialist agenda? The future of identity to be used as an imperialist agenda. I'm mulling over that term because when I think about identity, you know, so there's this very complicated way in which the word alone, identity, as you and I both know, has been both co-opted and manipulated, mm -hmm. even as it remains in some ways a very important part of organizing and thinking through different ways of thinking about history. And consequently, then consequently, being able to dismantle imperialism as it advances into the future. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to stop, if I, if I may, for a minute and just mull over that word identity and also the term identity politics. I know this is not where you're coming from, but just for the, you know, for the sake of clarity for our listeners, right? Mm -hmm. I just want mm -hmm. to sort of say there is a, a real necessity to both include identity and also be critical of how it's included. The problem today, I think, is that there are many sectors, not of the right. You know, my concern in my politics and my writing, as you may know, has never really been with the right wing. Because to me, you know, I look at the right and I think, you know, I grew up in Indiana. I see you. I know you. I get you. <laughs> I can deal with you. I grew up practically, <laughs> you know, I mean, I practically right. grew up in a town in Indiana where the KKK would gather on the steps of the courthouse every year. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I... 
I get it, right? I get that right-wing perspective. And, and that's, of course, as you might imagine, you know, sort of manifests itself in different interesting ways in the town itself, et cetera, et cetera. So I get that right-wing conservative, ultra-conservative perspective. I know how to deal with it. What is far more difficult and has been more contentious, I think, for many of us on the radical left, uh, and also those who, who are queer and who understand queer as problematic as it is, and we can talk, you know, perhaps later on about why queer is a troubling term in itself, not because of stigma, but why it also serves, I think, in imperialism. But we mm. can talk about that later. But for now, I think for those of us who are queer and who are also uh, of differently raced and ethnicized identities, mm -hmm. the, the issue of identity politics is rather different than what it is now for what I would say is often a predominantly racist white left. Mm. So when the racist white left starts to critique identity politics, not all of its practitioners of that particular kind of problematizing, not all of them, but quite a few of them take the opportunity of critiquing identity politics, especially when it comes from people of color like us, right? Queers or mm -hmm. people and slash or people of color, take Sorry. it as an opportunity Oh, no, no worries. They take it as an opportunity to completely, to really actually insist that racism is over. Right? Mm. So race, the effects, so, so the effects of race linger on and they will linger on until we reach that Star Trek next generation fantasy land, <laughs> uh, which, you know, may I just say as a huge fan, I totally believe in what else is, you know, we have to yearn for utopias, right? So on the left, which is still, it's not necessarily in fact predominantly left, but certainly its outlets, its voices, right? Its platforms mm -hmm. are still dominated by whiteness in, in many ways. Yep. On that left, there's a kind of, and also now it has slowly started to also co-opt and adopt and bring out certain people of color who also articulate the same sort of critique, quote unquote, of identity politics. And I'm invested in that critique, but I haven't, I just wanted to be sure to say, that a critique of identity politics has to be much more nuanced than saying that we are beyond race, as some people on the left say, or that we are beyond racism, or that everything is about a pure, quote unquote, class-based analysis. Right, so, and I, I certainly agree. I think that I have many critiques of, of identity politics, but I actually use, as a like, a, like you said, a Black queer person myself, I, I use the term identity reductionism right. because I think a lot of times when when white people on the left are critiquing identity politics, what they're really critiquing is the reduction of politics to only identity. Um, uh, so I, I always make that distinction that people, a lot of people don't even really understand the origins of the term identity politics or where it comes from or the Kumbahi River Collective, right. any, any of these kind of you know, organizing histories that exactly. that we should probably do a better job of spreading. But um, so I definitely appreciate you, right. you breaking that down. You know, and it's not really upon us either. You know, and I know you know this, but you know, it's not just upon us to have to undertake that education because gosh knows. I mean, my kid says, no, we have been doing this wretched kind of education so long and I'm so sick of it. I want to invite people on the left and go, y'all can read, you know, take, get, you know, you're all pretty educated or you have the access to education. Pick up, can I say, pick up a bloody book. <laughs> you can, you can cuss on here. <laughs> I, okay, I wasn't sure if you, I don't know who's defined by FCC rules or not, so I never know. Uh, no, but yeah, pick up a goddamn book, you know, pick up a goddamn right. book, read it. If you don't have, you know, don't go up to black and brown people to ask them to explain it to you. Sit down amongst yourselves, talk amongst yourselves, figure this shit out. Don't keep asking us to explain to you what the history of terms like identity politics might be. Uh, it is there and it is a strong, vibrant history. So there's that aspect of it as well. And I think, but to get back to your question about, uh, you know, the deployment, right? I think is what you're asking about. The deployment mm -hmm. of identity. Yes. And I think... In, in terms of queer history, I think what is so interesting is, for instance, around war, um, and please cut me off if I'm sort of diverting from the main point here, but no, I just want fine. to, you know, but in terms of history, I'm thinking about, for instance, the late 60s and 70s, where, L, where gay men and women, uh, when the queer, what term queer was, 
sort of being used, but not quite so wide in such a widespread way. But gay men and women were among those many who protested at U.S. imperialism, for instance. Mm-hmm. So there's been a strong um, push towards that kind of agenda for a very long time in the LGBTQ community. And I think what you have in the 1990s is the depletion of political energy and really just all sorts of energy right after the AIDS crisis, um, mm. which we quote unquote won in a manner of speaking for some, and you know, that's a whole other complicated issue around HIV AIDS funding and all of that. But we quote unquote won that, but we were also severely depleted in terms of political energy. And what you have in the 1990s is also particularly in urban areas where there is a concentration of gay population for all kinds of historical reasons. What you get there is also the the rise of a neoliberal um, urban politics, which, for instance, manifests itself in things like the cleaning out of Times Square. Mm -hmm. That's all part of that particular agenda. And what you get in that sort of political vacuum at that moment is the rise of, in, of, inst- of uh, organizations like Human Rights Campaign. So Human Rights Campaign comes into being, which is the, at this current moment in time, is arguably the biggest, uh, HRC is how most people refer to it, yep. is arguably the biggest, um, is the biggest um, uh, gay organization on the planet, (laughs) (laughs) of being based in the US and having all these resources. And what Mm -hmm. you get consequently is a kind of near the the rise of a conservative, what is actually a deeply conservative, deeply imperialist, deeply, um, you know, neoliberal gay agenda. But because it's a gay agenda, people on the left, people who are liberals, people who are conservatives, nobody wants to touch it because no one wants to criticize the gays. I mean, and I'm giving here a very, very extremely broad sweep Mm -hmm. of how things happen. But what you get then is this, and what you get are these extremely powerful, almost all white gay men and women with tons of money now, because they're all now entering, you know, Fortune 500 companies, et cetera, et cetera. They have money and you get the the rise of a moneyed gay elite. So whereas in even in previous centuries, you always have, by the way, you've always had gay elites. Some of them would refer to them as as, as monarchies, <laughs> but you've always had <laughs> gay elites across the world. Um, you know, the British aristocracy is entirely gay. <laughs> um, but you know, you've always had gay elites, but this is the first time in history that we actually see an out, confidently out gay elite forming itself. Um, and that's where you get this push towards, because the, the push towards inclusion for this gay elite is not necessarily thought out in terms of, oh yes, we want to advance an American imperialist agenda, but it is very much of about wanting to belong. Yes, certainly. But the, the, the issue that a lot of people have missed is that a lot of that gay elite is gay elitism was actually about accruing capital. Mm. So when you are part of an elite, the first thing you want to do is to make sure that your capital is, as in capital, capital, is accrued, is safe, and can be disseminated across, down conventional family lines, for instance. Mm -hmm. So that is the most important thing. And that is really what drives the gay agenda. You know, what a lot of people don't know is that HRC, for instance, was initially not at all for fighting for inclusion in the military. Mm. That had to be argued for. Uh, Nathaniel Frank, I I think I've got his name right, has an interesting, um, I don't agree with his politics around marriage and the military, but he has a really interesting history about how the gay community had to be riled up, really, to support um, inclusion in the military. And now, as we know, as we write in this essay, it is a billionaire trans woman, Jennifer Pritzker, who initiates the push mm-hmm. for inclusion in the military. So, you know, follow the money, right? Is, has always been an interest, has always been a good directive, I think, not just for journalists, but for thinkers of critical uh, social movements, for instance. And I think it's very much uh, the case here. So the, I bring all of that up in order to really kind of complicate and uh, striate this history of 
upward ascension or even the I think the sort of lay analysis that a lot of us even left queer people and people on the left have is that the problem with gay politics is the push towards assimilation that's really mm -hmm. not it it's a very it's it's a push that's very much located within the accumulation of capital to put it bluntly, mm -hmm. and that is something we need to think about much more yes i i, I mean i 100 percent agree i think that the there's sort of a a hovering over right the narrative of assimilation as if yeah. that's just the totality of of what's happening <laughs> when it's it's much much deeper and more layered than that and I, I, again it goes back to people not doing their education because even the term assimilation has this long history right of of being a colonial project that was rooted in capital and, and labor right. and class and, and race and all these things so one of one thing that instantly popped into my mind um i'm from atlanta um and in atlanta in what's called midtown atlanta it's known as the quote-unquote gay section of atlanta uh -huh. and and it, it over the past decade went from somewhere where you would see many homeless people uh -huh. there was a radical feminine radical feminist bookstore um black owned restaurants uh -huh. it was sort of a cultural hub but it was it was also where poverty danced around the streets as well and now about a decade and a half later it's mostly upper middle class to upper class um uh mostly white gay men but just upper class kind of queer people in general and now there's there's been a sort of gentrification that took place so it, but in the same time it's marveled as like the part of the city with quote unquote the least crime while it's also the the most heavily policed part of the city right so you have this idea where where you now have this class ascension or an ascent i like the word you use you said ascension right so i think it's sort of this class ascension that took place with gentrification and it's this very complicated little bubble where you have this identity aspect where it's a heavily queer and trans part of town but then you also have this kind of class and racial aspect where you now have an upper class which is has as heightened policing in that area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess I say all that just to ask, how do we discuss the, these topics and how do we discuss sort of untangling these layers um, that are masked behind this inclusion and diversity narrative to, to fix these problems? And, and, and again, this is in a, the same city where there's an extremely, extremely alarmingly high um, homelessness rate of queer and trans people of color. Mm -hmm. Right. So these contradictions that exist. Right. Yes, I see that a lot of that in Hyde Park as well. And in Andersonville, I used to live in Uptown, which was next to Andersonville. And we see very much the same narrative that you've just laid out. I mean, and I don't mean same as in, I don't think it plays out exactly the same way everywhere. Atlanta, mm -hmm. Georgia certainly has a very different racial history than Chicago, Illinois. So we have mm -hmm. to keep those differences in mind. But yes, that's but, that, I, but that's I've a been familiar to narrative. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I've been to Chicago and I can see certain, certainly yeah. see similarities. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and Hyde Park, for instance, where I live, I spoke to someone who said the other day that this is the one of the lowest, quote unquote, lowest crime areas. And mm -hmm. but that's because this is a military installation. You know, they've got two exactly. police forces. The biggest, mm -hmm. um, as you know, the biggest private security force in the country is the University of Chicago's police force. Uh, and then, of mm. course, we've got Chicago police, uh, famed, shall we say, delicately, uh, right. for how it operates. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> you were asking, right? Um, but you were asking, how do we make these complications evident? Hi, uh, you know, let's talk about that. You know, when I, when, when Against Equality began its work of, of really coming up with not just hey, queers are wonderful and radical analysis, right? We were really trying to locate our critique, and we do constantly in an economic analysis. It was constantly rebuffed or made invisible. You know, people wouldn't even, people would literally uh, prevent us from speaking at universities because they defined us as a hate group, for instance. Oh, and oh wow. 
Right, this is coming from gay people. So today, what's interesting to me is that 2017, 2018, the critique that we were among the first to present as an anthology you know, in terms of in, in, as collections of critiques, that was our intention, was to say there is no one queer person who's saying this. There have been a number of us over the centuries, and there are a lot of us right now with these critiques, right? That was our intention, was to right, present right. that very diverse range of critiques. And today it seems almost normalized, and now people are jumping on the bandwagon, but they're only looking at assimilation. They're not looking at the economic, politry, uh, politry, politry. Politry, and I was going to say political and military, but politry sounds rather good. <laughs> that sounds like, a, that sounds like something you should... You should write down right now. <laughs> sure, I, I am. Politery, she wrote in all caps. Um, so the, the sort of politery aspect of gay, uh, gay politics. And I think because we, so the reason that it's getting out there is because we kept at it. But also because we have to, I think, recognize that our critiques of, for instance, of queer politics and of embedding our politics within the economic and the political as much as the social and the cultural, that mm. has come up, that has to come about only if we understand that the rootedness of what we might call gay conservatism exists not just in the political and, you know, the economic, but exists in the everyday. So it exists, for instance, in school syllabi. So now, for instance, we're seeing a big rush for at least some schools, you know, the more quote unquote progressive uh, schools, for instance, to integrate gay history. But what does that look like? It looks very, it looks horribly assimilationist, quote unquote. It looks very much like love gay people. The, way in, the ways in which, you know, for instance, black radical history gets erased in favor of teaching black history as we must love and accept black people. Right? right, or we must accept and love Native American people, but not really learn about what genocide was all about. Um, right. So I think that, you know, the the on, in a broader sense, and maybe you can help me sort of bring that into uh, into sort of more the minute details. But in a broader sense, we have to start thinking about integrating critique and integrating, shall we say, a reevaluation, since people don't like the term critique, a reevaluation <laughs> of how we go about thinking about these complex complexities. We have to think about it in terms of how we have to get it into the quotidian you know, forms of life, um, mm -hmm. not just writing endless bloody op-eds. I am just so tired of bloody op-eds everywhere. This is wrong, and this is terrible, and Trump is awful. We know this shit. Um, right. How do we start talking about it to our friends who are, you know, kindergarten teachers or uh, grade school teachers? Or how do we start talking about it to our friends who are accountants and not queer radical, you know, not marching with us in every march, right? So, right, right. Um, and how do we do that institutionally? And I'll give you an example, which is that a couple, a few years ago, uh, Gender Just, a group of, of which I'm also a member here, hosted a, uh, it was merely a sort of a teach-in slash uh, discussion group around the nonprofit industrial complex. And we recognized that most of our friends, because, okay, what do you do, for instance, with a, with a degree in gender studies and slash or English? You go into the nonprofit world. <laughs> there aren't a lot of other choice. And a lot of people who are in the, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex, NPIC for short, are actually people who are deeply uncomfortable with the larger mission of the NPIC, but they actually do want to bring about change. So we right. organized this teaching and we were expecting, as always, you know, maybe about oh, 10, 12 people. We ended up with something like 25, 30 people in a relatively small space. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you what a relief it was for all these people to have a space to come together and to just articulate, oh, yes, so I have uh, there are these other people who have similar issues. And how do we all move together while we need to make a living each of us needs to make a living so we can't just walk out of our jobs but what are the ways in which we can think about integrating change analysis into the work that we do and how do we keep in touch with each other to form a support network mm -hmm. so something as simple as that was hugely liberating if i may use the word for you know this relatively small but also important group of people i mean you know it's you know, in the South Loop of Chicago, mm -hmm. people were able to come and so on. So I think what we, we also lack, I think, 
on the left, quite frankly, is a comfort with actually thinking about revolution and intellectual work as being very much interrelated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the left, and, in yeah, go ahead, please. I've gone no, on. I was just going to say that's a great point. Um, I, I, I always think that we are very great at anger. We're not very mm -hmm. great at what comes next, right? We're, we're not, right. We, we always have had this problem of being angry without having the ability to map out or even even think about sometimes solutions and fixes and then as you said in the eventual revolution right um and, and the right has ideas i'm sorry i just no go ahead yeah the right has ideas and it has bloody think tanks with mm -hmm. which it perpetuates those ideas we don't have that as much but please the right ahead. is very organized yes <laughs> deeply and organized. i think you know i think that there's this very intentional narrative that the right um, and when I say the right, I mean midway through the Democratic Party all the way over, yes. right? <laughs> um, and I think that they, there's this, there's this very intentional narrative that it's just a few Southerners who are white and they wear tank tops all day and, and wife beaters and they just, you know, it's like this very quote unquote, I hate this word, but quote unquote redneck or hillbilly. It's a, it's like a terrible, yes, it's a real demonization as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. certainly is. It's a horrible word that I try not to use, but, oh, no, but that's, yeah. that's the narrative that we're taught when in reality, exactly. it's people in suits right. and ties with billions and billions exactly. of dollars. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and we have no, we have no, um, I guess we have no comparison to that. <laughs> no. no, we don't, we don't, we don't actually. Hello, this is Devin Srinivas. To all the listeners out there, I wanted to apologize for Devin's voice sounding so weird. He has a cold right now, and I'm probably to blame. I wanted to remind everyone that if you like this podcast, please check out Devin's Patreon at patreon.com slash halfatlanta, and feel free to make a contribution. Anyways, back to the episode. And you know, the, we are, I think on the left, we are rightly often troubled by the idea of institutions <laughs> mm -hmm. coming together and forming think tanks and sort of asking us all to comport. But that's not even what I want. What I want is for us to at least start to think. We have, especially in recent years, with all of this ballyhoo around um, radical academics. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Heavens, why are they all white? I wonder. Anyway, which, which, we... <laughs> which you, which according to one of your articles, you say is an extinct. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, you know, the idea of this is so much. Yeah, and that's a whole show we can and we should do together. Actually, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> we would. We should. We should. I would really. I would really like that. Certainly. But you know, we have this. Thank you. But we have this idea, especially in the last few years, where with all this fuss about radical academics under threat, etc., etc., we. We are uh, we've kind of started to think about the left as something that needs to do action and i think a lot of that quite frankly is because of the gendered aspect of the left that we mm. also ignore um you know yeah many years ago it occurred to me and then i found that fran Leibovitz had said had said something very similar much many years prior to what i thought when i thought about it but she said it of course much more brilliantly but essentially the gist of it is this that the reason that so many, um, so many writers and poets and teachers, you know, male writers, if you think about Hunter S. Thompson, you know, all of that, the gonzo journalism bit, all of that sort of macho writer shit, right? The reason mm -hmm. that exists is because men who go into the liberal arts, men who become writers, men who become artists are so immediately made effeminate in, in the cultural imaginary that this mm -hmm. is a kind of compensation, you know, that gonzo shit is re was really a, a lot of compensation for feeling emasculated, quote unquote, by, by culture at large. So, and I think what is interesting to me is that I'm seeing that a lot right now on the academic left in particular. What you have are political scientists, political theorists, uh, you know, teachers of literature, etc., all talking about bashing the fascists. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to knock the socks off some guy and just, 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 just take me in front of them. I'll show you what I can do. The sort of weird macho crap that's swelling up within a certain front, shall we say, of the academic left, that has everything to do with wanting to recuperate masculinity, right? So 
there's a way in which I think the left has now, and because so many of left outlets, you know, writing outlets, et cetera, are dominated already by male leftists in particular, I think we're seeing this kind of attitude that the left must not stop to think. The left must just continue with its action. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have to, we've failed with 2016, for instance, because, wait, we're going to forget that we weren't really all that invested in the first place in electoral politics, that our vision needed to be much broader than that. We're going to forget all of that. And we're going to talk about action, action, action. And anyone who tells us that we need to stop and think is being ridiculous. But let us now fund magazines which don't pay writers to write, but only <laughs> produce. You know, that's another one of my, <laughs> one of my biggest peeves, of course, but that's a whole mm-hmm. other thing. You know, but let us keep producing producing op-ed after op-ed, ridiculously, you know, empty op-eds about how we have to contend with fascism on the right. So, mm-hmm. you know, and but we don't have, we've never had a sense of how to connect, and I don't mean never, never, but especially in the last few many years, I think this idea of connecting thought to revolution is sometimes I wonder if it's just dying out, really. Because mm-hmm. all I'm seeing is people farting out the same puppet analysis <laughs> day after day. It's like, well, didn't you just say that like six months ago? Mm-hmm. I think a, I think a perfect, perfect, perfect example, and everybody who follows me on Twitter knows I talk about this all the time, is this conversation around cultural appropriation, for example. Yes. There's 10 articles a month that come out on cultural appropriation and it just pretty much copies and pastes the last one and then replaces the name of the celebrity we're mad at this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, there's no deeper critique of capitalism yeah. or colonialism or anything like that. It's just the same, um, the same thing repeated. And I think that one thing, especially as it relates to sort of queer radical left, is we don't have any proper methods of counter propaganda, right? Because I think that all, all invested parties, whether they're invested in revolution or counter-revolution, um, sh- should work towards some form of propaganda, or really what I mean yeah. is, I guess, popular aesthetic and popular right. um, politics. And we have, we have none of that, right? We don't have right. a teen vogue for the left, even though as of late, teen vogue has been really surprising <laughs> with some yes. of the articles they're putting right. out. Right. Right. Um, so, and not to change topics too much, I wanted to... I wanted to ask one more question related to your newest article before I dive into some of your other sure. work. But um, one aspect that I pulled out of, I kind of got from reading your article and from an interview you did with with watching the Hawks, was that it's often oppressed and colonized communities who are asked to kill or be killed in order to prove their patriotism. Yes. Um, whether it's through the military, the police. Um, Whatever it may be, it's 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 oppressed and colonized people are not asked in, in sort of the same way to prove their worth, their loyalty to these empires. Um, can you expand on that a bit? Sure. It is so the way that happens, the way that it is often oppressed, marginalized communities asked to give up life and limb is simply because what we have, at least looking at the United States military, is in effect an economic job. So if you consider that when we're talking about oppressed and, and uh, you know oppressed marginalized communities in the United States, we are more often than not we are talking about African American communities. We're talking about immigrant communities, uh, mm-hmm. as you know, in uh, especially in the I'm trying to in Obama and Bush years prior to that, immig- undocumented immigrants. And I actually once witnessed a recruiting agent do this. Undocumented immigrants were especially being lured into the army with promises of citizenship, mm-hmm. right? And then, yep. of course, what happens is you die and you're basically your grave is granted citizenship. Right. Right. Um, so immigrant <laughs> communities, you know, hi, he's dead, but he was a citizen. Mm. He, he died a citizen. Horrible. Yeah, it's horrible, absolutely horrible. But so you have undocumented people, you have African Americans, um, you have uh, that is to say, in terms of African Americans, what we are talking about is active recruiting, and this happens in Chicago, this happens everywhere. You have active recruiting in, for instance, South Side high schools. We mm. see, you know, in when I lived on the North Side, for instance, there was a huge protest around a school called Sen High School which was also the ground which was also going to become the site of uh, an ROTC um, 
wing and the, the fight was lost. But essentially what we saw was the army going into neighborhoods with a majority African-American, core African-American population, new first-generation immigrant populations, many of whom were undocumented, which is to say populations of people with fewer access to capital and to fewer access to economic and other resources. Going into those communities and telling their parents, you know, if you let your kids into the army, we'll take care of them. We'll grant them a college education. We'll give them health care. And as you might imagine, there was a lot of resistance to that, especially on the South side. There was actually a lot of resistance to that with people saying, no, you need to get the hell out of our schools right now. We are not giving you our children as fodder. But as you might imagine, you know, the forces of imperialism being much stronger in many cases, um, the battle has often been lost. But mm -hmm. the major way in which the, it's not that marginalized communities feel more patriotic, it is simply that in an America where healthcare is still tenuous, where just the ability to live, the ability, for instance, to gain housing, anything like that is all contingent upon sacrificing yourself on the altar of imperialism, really. That's what it's coming down to. So mm -hmm. we, we ended the draft uh, post the 60s, but we have an economic draft. And because most marginalized communities in the United States are quote-unquote minority communities are still economically fragile, um, they are automatically, so it's not any kind of you know, impulse on their part. Uh, but it is a desperate, really, ultimately, it comes down to a desperation. And I will say, for instance, one of my saddest moments as a teacher when I ta taught as a lecturer at UIC was one, one, of, my, one of my brightest uh, students. Um, and this wouldn't have, you know, I only say that because she was really extraordinarily bright. It wouldn't have mattered if she hadn't been one of my best students. Right, but right. one of my, you know, brightest and favorite students was, was a young white woman. Um, and she came to me and she said she had to leave because she had to recruit, she had to enter the army. She said, I have no choice. My family doesn't come from money. I have all these debts. All of us in the family have these debts and this is my best option and I hate it. Uh, and she was a pacifist on top of everything else. That mm. is one of my saddest moments. Uh, and I know that many people you know, across the country have had such moments of watching their students have to give up. Uh, even sometimes their principles, right? To, mm -hmm. to enter the army. So this is something just really profound. And this is, um, there's a way in which I think this country is being stratified in such dismaying ways. You know, I come from the third world. <laughs> I have no problems using that word. I come from the third world. I come from mm -hmm. India, a country where people, you know, die on the street. Um, but I have never understood the ways in which people are made, are deadened, are, are, are made invisible, even in their dying. Mm -hmm. I think that's what the United States has perfected is a way of making invisible its death machinery which is mm -hmm. what's different from where I came, yeah, from mm -hmm. whence I came. Right, certainly. And I, I think that to, to put it on a sort of, I guess, global or international scale, this concept of oppressed and colonized communities having to pledge allegiance to the empire, the, the same narratives are also pushed onto, onto other countries and other communities across the third world as well. Um, I'm for me I'm I'm Cuban and Jamaican right and the Cuban people for some part of 50 years now have refused to pledge allegiance to the empire and they've suffered economic sanctions because of it right and right. they've suffered assassination attempts and xyz you can look at uh any you can look at revolutions across the the continent of Africa in this yeah. same narrative of when Kwame Nkrumah overtook Ghana and installed a socialist government, that was seen as him not pledging allegiance to the empire of the US and he was punished for it. So I think that this is such an important conversation because it's not just on a micro level, but it also plays out on this international level um, as well. And it's just a great concept that I'm so glad, you know, that that you've hashed out and explored and and, and the same kind of conjecture or, or contradiction people come to about principles often you know is played out across the third world on larger scales as well too Absolutely. Of, i mean i think that any country that's ever undertook revolution had, the leaders have had to ask themselves are we willing to lose this massive support vampiric support right but still yes. support nonetheless from the west in order to stand autonomously and that's always mm -hmm. a difficult question and the way, of course, that the West then justifies that tremendous kind of 
what I can only call annihilation, you know, the annihilation mm -hmm. of socialist socialism, for instance, in parts of the world, or at least the attempt to annihilate it, uh, is, is then supported in the West, and certainly in the United States, as you know, with the narrative of crisis. Oh, yep. look, this terrible poor country was in deep crisis. So much corruption, as you know, you know the corruption narrative, as you know, oh, yeah. it especially yep. played out a lot in Africa. Oh, well, you uh -huh. know, that government was corrupt. Uh, so we had to go in and help them get rid of a corrupt leader. Um, yep. And that's also, of course, as you know, yeah, true in Latin America. Um, to me, it's also funny because I come from an extraordinarily corrupt uh, country india <laughs> but no one's complaining about the corruption in india right because it's because <laughs> india is currently led by sort of a right-wing exactly. you know group that is in in cahoots with the u.s <laughs> exactly exactly so no one cares about that corruption i mean in india literally you you can barely mail a letter without bribing <laughs> someone trust me on this <laughs> um, um and not to be i like, think I, I think another aspect where, and this is, tr I think, true for the TLGBQ community, but also for most most marginalized communities in, in the U.S., we, 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 one way we're failing people across the third world is we'll talk about transphobia and trans violence and homophobia and et cetera, et cetera, but we don't extend that same kind of identity conceptualization onto people in the third world. Yes. So the, the people who are getting droned or bombed or shot or sanctioned even are still queer and trans people, are still black and brown people, et cetera. I just don't think we extend that same identity outside of our very borders. Right, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm also thinking about how it does that with gender as well. The, mm, you know, the Afghan war, you know, it's somehow our pink bombs will only reach, you know, Al <laughs> the Taliban, the members of the Taliban. It will not right. touch women. Um, yes, exactly. Identity becomes deployable in that sense. Um, and also that, you know, even in the US, when we think about, for instance, I'm glad you raised the issue of trans identity again, you know, this is what we're talking about. But I think even in the US, um, when we talk about trans identities, and we talk about the vulnerability of trans people in general, we still, I think, even as we are now, we seem to be in a time when we talk more about brutality and violence and mm -hmm. the murder towards and the murder of trans individuals, we are still not willing to look hard at the circumstances around all of that. So we talk a lot, for instance, about trans people being murdered for who they are, quote unquote. That's often the phrase that's used. But it's, of course, you know, but we ignore the fact that, for instance, if there's a rise in the murder of trans individuals, many of them, for instance, are sex workers who mm -hmm. are forced into street trade in a much more dangerous street trade because, for instance, they may not even have access to housing. Because when you apply for housing, say, at a, you know, if you go to a landlord and fill out an application and the landlord takes one look at you and decides you're one of those... A trans people who makes them uncomfortable and he just throws the application into the wastebasket once you're gone right so it's extreme and i detail all of that to explain how difficult it can be for trans people who come out but whose outness is not like lesbian and gay outness it's mm. not a comfortable outing for majority society right so the outness is visible in different ways it makes people uncomfortable and refuse to give them what they need so they end up being homeless they're often cut off from their families. They're in these economically strange circumstances, which forces them into street trade, which makes them a lot more vulnerable to not just, you know, being burglar, you know, to being vandalized, to being robbed, but being beaten and murdered because right. no one cares about them. So it is those sort of economic, you know, if we had a system which said, you know, for trans people transitioning, for instance, we must provide support systems. We must provide housing we must be able to help them with negotiate new jobs because a lot of trans people instantly lose their jobs once they come out so coming okay. out for trans people is very different than it is for many LGBT, you know for lesbians and gays uh, for lesbian gays and bisexuals it's a very different experience but when we talk about trans murders and we talk about trans violence towards trans people the narrative that i often hear and which frustrates me so much is they're murdered for who they are. No, they're not. Yes, they are. 
but they're also murdered because we have put them in such extraordinarily precarious situations. And those mm. precarious situations have everything to do with a, a complete lack of an economic uh, safety net for them. Mm-hmm. And that's I, I, I 100% agree. And I, I, that was very well put. I know that for me as a, as a Marxist-Leninist, you know, I'm always looking for a class aspect in things, but I think a big part that's missing from the left um, is the, the amount that, to which violence constructs class and violence yeah. regulates class and violence regulates a class hierarchy. So the reason trans people are, are, are living in poverty and homelessness is because violence is the way through which that is maintained. Yes. Um, and just to let you know, we have about 10 more minutes left. Oh, um, sure. Just to let you know, I didn't wanna, I keep, we keep on starting these right, great changes. I know. <laughs> um, so switching gears a little bit, I wanted to end by referring back to the book Against Equality, because I think it's such a great and powerful book that I recommend all my listeners go and purchase. Um, I got mine from the AK Press website directly. Um, I'm not a big fan of Amazon. Listeners should know that. So you just go and get you a copy, or if you know someone who has it, ask to borrow a copy. But but Yasmin, I wanted to read just this first paragraph of the introduction you wrote to the book, um, because I think it, it's very emblematic of this entire conversation we just had. Um, you say, quote, the history of gay marriage supposedly goes something like this. In the beginning, gay people were ho- horribly oppressed. Then came the 1970s where gays, all of whom looked like the men of the village people, were able to live openly and have a lot of sex. Then in the 1980s, many gay people died of AIDS because they had too much sex in the 1970s. This taught them that gay sex is bad. The gays who were left realized the importance of stable, monogamous relationships and began to agitate for marriage and the 1000 plus benefits it would bring. Soon in the very near future, with the help of supportive married straight people and President Obama, gays will gain marriage rights in all 50 states and they will then be as good and productive as everyone else. Reading that, I mean, as I just said, it's emblematic of this entire conversation, but it agitates this really, really watered down history that we were given. And what's fascinating to me is it took several decades for for Malcolm X, for example, to be Mm -hmm. so watered down, right? It took many decades of him not being in history books and then barely being mentioned to now we're getting a watered down version. But it's almost as if queer history and queer and trans kind of radical history has been hyper sped up and we're already being given this Barack Obama narrative of Barack Obama's the Abraham Lincoln of the gays. Can you, I guess, touch on what inspired you to write that, to open up the introduction of the book with that? And and obviously you lead into, you know, um, critiques of of quote unquote gay marriage, the legalized gay slogan. Um, You legitimize queer rage in that it shouldn't be a assimilationist rage, right? So I guess, can you just speak to that a little bit, that introduction um, and your thoughts behind it? Sure. I wrote it the way I did because what struck me was that all our queer radical energy was constantly being dissipated, was constantly being vanished, you know, being disappeared in effect by a larger culture, which only wanted a palatable narrative from, from gay people. And I also realized that a lot of this was coming from no, I don't think that I wouldn't call them well-meaning. I'll just call them straight people, you know, well-meaning or not. But straight people <laughs> did not want to have anything to do with LGBTQ politics, queer politics, unless they could assimilate it, to use that overused word, into a narrative that made them comfortable about their own history. The you know, the history of straightness is as complicated, I would argue, as the history of queerness. Um, but I, you know, so but I think that's so. What struck me was that so many structures, 
you know, whether it's the military, and this is mostly the introduction to the marriage part of the book. Um, and thank you for reading that, by the way. But, you know, the structures like the military, the, the marriage institution, the institution of marriage, uh, the institution of prisons to which, you know, which we should talk about an, another day as well. I mean, the, the prison industrial complex, all of that is very much tied to this narrative, again, of ascension of moving through history as if history is simply this organic thing that makes progress. But no one questions who writes that history, but also what is that progress about? And I mm -hmm. wanted to rupture that and say, this is what you believe. You actually believe this bullshit about our history. But in fact, you know, this is a history of blood. <laughs> this is a history <laughs> of resistance. This mm -hmm. is a history of queer people being really pissed off. And a lot, there are people, you know, there are gays, you know, I'm thinking about, for instance, the playwright uh, who wrote AIDS in America. Oh, why can I not remember his name? Um, um, Angels in America, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. You know, those kinds of histories are seen as angry histories, but they're not. They're actually really watered down versions of who we are. And mm -hmm. what I wanted was to give people a sense of, you know, this is what you believe, isn't it? Yes, I know you do. I'm going to lull you into the sense that this is the history I'm going to present you with. And then, you know, this book is going to rupture all of that. Uh, so I really wanted to get people familiar with their own familiarity and then to disrupt that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's what's so important about the book itself is it, it takes on a number of uh, honestly non-controversial kind of generally accepted liberal queer and trans politics, and like you said, it disrupts them and it ruptures them. Thank you. Um, and I found your your essay legalized on, on the kind of legalized gay oh, yeah. terminology. Yeah. Um, and for listeners, I think honestly, maybe a lot of younger listeners might not even remember that slogan because it came and went kind of right. really fast. But there was essentially a move when the gay marriage debate was the number one thing talked about across the country, there were shirts that said legalize gay. Um, and Yasmin, you actually kind of push against that slogan, correct? You're right, I do. And I point out that what does it mean to make something legal? What kinds of structures are involved in making something legal? But also, you're not illegal. <laughs> you know, I think that was my <laughs> point that I made in the essay. Right. No one is illegal. If anything, it is gay, quote unquote, the, the sort of the space occupied by quote unquote gay that is now more legal even than any other identity. Whereas mm. you have identities like, you know, uh, and all, I'm also very much in favor of the word illegal, right? So I write about docu undocumented immigrants, for instance, and I, and I say that what we need actually is to rein reinvest in the word illegal alien. Because when mm. you, when you so that, and that's what I was trying to do even in this essay about the legal, you know, uh, make legalize gay campaign, I was trying to say that we have to start quite, when you start to talk about making something legal, as for, you know, sodomy, for instance, there's a long history of when, when, um, when the Texas lawsuit came about successfully for us, we all said, well, now to be gay is legal. But actually, all that that particular lawsuit did was to say that sodomy is okay as long as it's done in the privacy of your bedroom. Right. What it means is that underage or, for instance, uh, street workers, street sex workers can actually still be put in prison for, quote unquote, committing sodomy. So all that does is to make it easier for, again, well off, comfortably off, wealthy gay men and women to be gay in the enclosed private space of capital it leaves everyone else out in the lurch. So this whole mm. idea constantly of how we demand, this whole, the way in which we always demand legality is in itself problematic. And we also need to take terms like legal and illegal and really think about why we have to keep using them in order to get us to question what are the structures that define us as legal and illegal in the first place? What are the investments? You know, whether you think mm -hmm. about slavery, right? So it's not, the issue is not, did we quote unquote end slavery? The issue is what are the structures that actually still keep, right? Blackness or anti-blackness as a part of governmental institutions, for instance. Uh, those are the things that we don't interrogate when we say, ah, something is no longer legal. 
But in fact, economic systems still survive all across the world and in the United States to extract labor from people in the most mm -hmm. horrific conditions possible. We just happen to call it capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah. And I, I, I found that essay really helpful because I'm, I'm currently working on a book that is sort of about violence. And I, I, I go over the, the notion that what does legality and illegality mean on a settler colonial empire, right? right. Like, it, would we not consider every prisoner who's, who's of an oppressed uh, community or identity a political prisoner, right, in this sense? Is, is every Black person who's arrested in some shape, form, or fashion not a political prisoner? So I wish I would have read your essay before you know, starting to write that chapter of the book because now I've had, now I have to go back and rewrite so much <laughs> because it just it adds another complicated layer to it. And I think thank you. You know, it's like we can end here, but I think it's just a great complication. Is such a underappreciated um, thing in today's time, and I love that you complicate so many narratives. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you reading out a portion of an essay. I appreciate you uh, pointing people to Against Equality's work. I really appreciate being on this show a lot. And I hope we can do this again. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say for the listeners listening, we, me and Yasmin didn't discuss this, but I'm going to say maybe we should do a part two in a few weeks yeah. or months. Yes. And, and um, there's so much more we could talk about and get into it. So I think I that maybe that. we'll have a part two coming out soon. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Yasmin, thank you for your time. Um, and I just want to say to the listeners, if you like this, make sure you go to patreon.com slash half Atlanta to support the podcast. Hello, this is Devin's friend Ian. To all the listeners out there, I wanted to apologize for Devin's voice sounding so weird. He has a cold right now and I'm probably to blame. I wanted to remind everyone that if you like this podcast, please check out Devin's Patreon at patreon.com slash half Atlanta. Feel free to make a contribution. Anyways, back to the episode.